Released on Sunday, May 22nd, 2016. This is Agile Life, episode 109. Slack Panther. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me this episode, we have Craig Buchek. Hello, everyone. How's it going, Craig? Uh, pretty good. Uh, it started getting warm here, and then it got cold, but today was kind of moderate. It was nice okay. after it warmed up, but it was cold and rainy yep. the past couple of days. Yep. But nobody cares about the weather. Why are we talking about the weather? Because uh, it was uh, nice for a change. I see. Joining us as a special guest on this episode of This Agile Life, we have Todd Kaufman. Hey, Todd, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So to in- introduce everyone to Todd, I'd, I'd like to tell you a little bit about him. Todd is a software developer, a consultant, and an entrepreneur with over 18 years of experience in delivering software solutions into production. He's worked with a variety of technology and processes, but recognizes that awesome people are the magic ingredient to building good software teams. This realization led him to co-found Test Double in 2011, a group of elite software developers and consultants focused on improving the way the world builds software. Wow, that's a mouthful. That's a big mission. <laughs> yeah, uh, the good thing is we feel like there's no shortage of software that needs improvement and fixing. So our work is cut out for us, no doubt about it. And we're small, but we feel like even small teams can have a big impact on the world. Boy, you're sure right about that. There's plenty of software out there that needs help. Well, yeah, some of it I, I actually wrote, so uh, I have to fix my own things first. But That's job security. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's right. getting better every day. <laughs> well, I ran into Todd up at Agile and Beyond 2016 in beautiful Ypsilanti, Michigan. And Todd gave a great presentation on fallacies of software developers. And it was so much so that obviously I wanted to have Todd here on the podcast with us today so we could talk more about that and and spread the word of these fallacies to all of our listeners. Uh, So Todd, without redoing the entire, you know, presentation here for the listeners of This Agile Life, could you tell us a little bit about what you talked about? Sure. Uh, So I think what I've seen in my career is that uh, software developers, we tend to focus on maybe the things that are easy for us to pick up uh, or maybe the things that we find more interesting. Um, We try to look for the easy solutions to problems. Uh, So oddly enough, I was giving this talk at an Agile conference, um, and really one of the tools that I feel like we often pull um, to try and solve problems is using Agile. Uh, We feel like Agile is just a solution to a problem. And really, all Agile is going to do is shine a light on your problems. So we want to try and steer people away from believing that there's a quick and easy fix to what is really uh, an inherently complex and broken system of software development. Uh, We want to focus maybe a little bit less on just trying to implement uh, our solutions in Node.js and React because they're the new hot technologies uh, when we in reality, we just repeat the same mistakes we used to make with Java or Ruby or .NET in these new technologies, and we have the same struggles that we always had. Uh, so this was this talk was intended to shine a light on maybe 
some of the things that we talk about a little bit less, uh, some of the things that we focus on a little bit less, uh, and I hope that people will spend as much time learning how to communicate, um, learning how to uh, balance, you know, kind of the priorities of their of their projects, and, and really just get better overall as an industry. So I think that uh, quick and simple, someone selling Agile as quick and simple is uh, settling a load of bull, I think. Um, it's it, there's there's power there, but it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be simple. Um, it might be simple. It's not going to be easy. Maybe I'll say that. Um, like you said, communication is is a lot of it, and you know, improving communication. Simple, maybe I don't know. Easy, definitely not. I think significant change is always hard, um, and I think that where we are as a as an industry uh, is really, uh, you know, just below the bar that we should be at. Uh, we I, I threw a lot of stats out. I think at the beginning of the talk, just highlighting the fact that. We're seen as a as as failures more often than not. IT executives expect seventy five percent of the projects that they start to fail, right? To come in over budget, uh, to come in, uh, you know, over schedule. Um, so I think that's a huge problem in how we're perceived. But I think even worse, we have the front row view to it, right? So we see not only the missed timelines on the build side, we also see all of these maintenance issues that we're leaving for ourselves, right? When we start getting a little bit of timeline pressure, we start cutting corners. Uh, you know, we're the ones who have that that front row seat, seeing that hey, this is going to be an unmaintainable solution in two to three years unless we really start changing things. And I think that needs to be changed, and it's going to be hard. There's no doubt about it. There's really no easy solution to anything, and unfortunately, what what I have run into a lot out there in the consulting community are people that run around with this agile toolkit and playbook where they try and roll into an organization that's already having a number of problems and, you know, try and tell them that agile is going to be the savior of all of their woes. And certainly agile can help, but it's not, you know, it's not something that you can just throw into an organization and then say, that'll be $50,000, please, and walk away and expect that everything gets better. Yeah, no doubt. I've, I've worked for and with a lot of companies like that, um, unfortunately, where, uh, you know, it's, it's really become quite the money grab, quite honestly, the agile industry uh, at large. Uh, you see things like, you know, certified scrum, you know, masters and things like that. And I just, it boggles my mind. I think I'm actually a certified scrum master because I went to a training and I managed to not fall asleep for the majority of two days. So I got a certificate that said, you know, I, I could be a scrub master after that. Um, you know, to me, that's, that's missing the point. Um, the problems that we're creating for ourselves are, are much more difficult to solve than just sitting in a, a two-day training class. That's for sure. Well, what were some of the, the particular fallacies that you presented in your, uh, in your talk? Yeah, so uh, one that I feel is is not getting a lot of uh, notice, um, which is really kind of problematic. I think in the in the age that we're in right now is that where we work doesn't really have an effect on on the software that we produce. Um, and the point that I was trying to make here is that one, we live in a great age, right? So there's never been higher demand for software developers than what we're dealing with right now, to be quite honest. And uh, I think that, you know, 
with that, we need to start applying a little bit more discipline in how we search for jobs and how we select uh, the environments within which we work. Um, you know, our, our environments, you know, people have worked in cube farms and we can, we can see immediately when we're working in a cube farm that, uh, you know, communication is going to be hampered just by the nature of the environment. And, and it's not that they're trying to send an explicit message that they don't want you to communicate when they set up their office like that, because that's far from the truth. Uh, maybe they're sending a, an explicit message about they want order and they want control and they want organization. Uh, but the implicit message that, you know, productivity sh- doesn't necessarily need to have communication is there and it, it affects how productive we are. Um, that's the easy one. And I think that's one that resonates with a lot of people because they've worked in those environments. Uh, but e- even more so, I think we see, you know, people trying to, to change their environment in little ways uh, to, to have an effect. And they don't necessarily think through all of the side effects that they wind up having. So for instance, I uh, showed an image of uh, people doing planks for a stand-up meeting. And <laughs> but obviously what they're trying to do, right, is have a quick stand-up meeting. That's the message yeah. they're sending. And I understand that. That's fine. But the picture I showed, there's four people, right? Like how long does that stand-up meeting take? And if you're solving it by doing planks, like what other messages are you sending, right? So if, if somebody comes in who's maybe, uh, you know, overweight, right, who has trouble doing planks or, you know, somebody who has a disability or even uh, a female developer who, who wants to wear a skirt or something like that, are they going to be comfortable in this environment? Um, so you don't necessarily have thought, you haven't thought everything through, right, when, when choosing some of these uh, little cues about how you want people to work. Um, Another example I shared was there was a blog post about a uh, startup that I think had taken 17 million in venture capital, uh, but they were really proud that they still work out of an environment. And they show this picture of like eight people who look extremely uncomfortable in the living room of this apartment, all with laptops, like huddled together on couches and kind of crammed in tight quarters uh, working together. And right. The the message they're sending there is that, look, we're, you know, judicious with our funds, right? Like we're good stewards of this VC that we've, we've taken in, uh, which I find humorous, right? Because I think it's a Silicon Valley company. So they probably spend, you know, three grand a month for that apartment anyways, right? Like it's not cheap, (laughs) (laughs) but, but also like what level of privacy should these people have to actually do good work? Um, what level of comfort should they have? Right. If I'm stuck on a couch with two other people for eight hours a day trying to trying to get things done, am I really going to be that effective? Am I going to be able to focus? Uh, software development's hard, right? It's a creative uh, industry. So we need to make sure we pay attention to the environments that we set up so that we can be effective. Um, I think most people tend to think when I'm bringing this up that we're going into, you know, uh, oh, he wants us to work in an open office environment, uh, which you know, it's great. I've, I've worked in open offices and they're fantastic too, but even they have drawbacks. Um, when you're, when you're working in an open office, there's a lot of distractions, right? And you tend to get a couple people who dominate the noise level of the office, right? Like two people are having an intense communication, uh, and there's 30 other people who can't get anything done, right? Or who are quickly putting on headphones as the, as the conversation escalates. Um, let alone all the visual distractions that you get as people are walking by in your periphery and you're trying to focus on 
you know, finding out what the cause of this bug was. So even open offices come with some drawbacks. You have to think about them before you make a choice. I have a lot of trouble concentrating in an open office. Uh, but the one thing that can help me is pairing. If I am talking to my pair and really engaged, that's about the only thing that will help me tune out the commotion in an open office. Yeah, I think that pairing is key, um, especially for the harder problems that we work on. Uh, at Testable, we're not dogmatic with pairing. Uh, we're not one of those companies who prescribes it, that you know, thou shalt pair eight hours a day um, and work on problems in that way. But we definitely see the same result that you're describing, right, where it brings almost, uh, you know, a healthy pressure for you to bring more focus, more creative energy, um, and, you know, just a, a better version of yourself to the table when you're paired up with somebody else because you, you want to work with them to, to solve the problem. I totally agree with that. Todd, it seems to me that you've taken great care to point out that where, where you work does indeed matter. Um, but you haven't gone as far as to say that there's an ideal set of work conditions or uh, an ideal working environment. Is that right? I think that's very accurate. There's all, all of these environments have some benefits and some drawbacks. And I haven't even described the environment that we have at Testable, uh, where we're a completely remote agency. So we have you know roughly 20 developers who are spread across, I think, seven states and two provinces in Canada. Uh, everybody works out of their house if they like, or we have some people go into co-working spaces because they like to be around other people and they start to go stir crazy just talking to their cats for long you know, hours on end, uh, which I totally understand. So the bigger message that we're trying to send being a remote agency uh, is not that we're cheap, uh, which we are, but that's not the <laughs> message. The message is we value autonomy. Right. So with our developers, we want to, we want them to feel that they are in charge of uh, basically creating the best solution to the problem. And, and that goes for, for everything, right? Where they work, when they work, uh, when they need to take a break, things, things like that. So that's, that's the message that we're trying to send is that autonomy we feel is more important than co-location. Uh, but again, that's that's not one size fits all. We lose out on some good candidates who who just would struggle to work remotely. So I've got another good example of location. Uh, I've worked from home for at least a year. And if I'm trying to work off of the couch, that's not nearly as effective if, as if I come up to my office and stand or sit at my desk. It just having that space for work. Uh, that's different from space for other activities is, is important to me at least. And it's important to a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah, we, uh, we're going to have a blog post published here shortly of, of someone we hired about a year ago, just, just kind of a year in review uh, of what it's been like for them to work at Testable. Uh, and Josh's point was that he struggles because the boundary has been blurred so much between work and home. Uh, that he's he's trying to figure out what that looks like. And for me, it's I have an office that I can close the doors. So when I'm starting work, I shut the doors and, and I basically go to work. When I'm ready for you know lunch or break or things like that, I open the doors, I, I you know kind of come back out and it's back into my house. Um, so I've been able to segregate myself that way. It sounds like you do something similar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's important to work in the office and to not work when I'm not in the office. 
it's easy to have it bleed into your life and feel like, well, work's always, you know, three feet away. So I can, you know, just always get pulled into it. It's, it takes some amount of discipline to, to try and kind of keep that balance. Yep. There was something, uh, something else I wanted to go into with on this, Todd, particularly you mentioned about co-location and of course, one of the things that we always talk about from bringing it back to Agile again is, is the fact that we want people to be co-located. Well, we came up with that statement about co-location back when we didn't have all the fancy tools that we have today. I mean, we're talking on Skype right now, and we could just as easily be sitting across a table from one another, right? We can have virtually, and I do mean virtually, the same interaction uh, with the technologies that we have available today that we could if we were in the same, practically in the same room. So co-location um, is, is not nearly as important anymore today, but you still want to have face-to-face interaction. And I've actually changed from mentioning co-location to people to saying face-to-face interaction. Yeah, I think that what we really want is um, to remove barriers to high bandwidth communication. So we want as few barriers to that as we can possibly have. Um, we, we try to coach consultants who work at Test Double to know that if you're having an important conversation, you need to pull it out of Slack. Uh, at worst, pick up a phone and talk to somebody so that you can hear their tone change as you're having the meaningful conversation. Ideally, get on Skype or, or a Hangout with them so that you can kind of see how they're reacting Right. Because there, there are a lot of cues that we pick up, uh, you know, obviously by being in the same room. But I think you can pick up a lot of those cues as well when when you're at least face to face with somebody over uh, Skype or a Hangout or something like that. Um, assuming that, you know, the Hangout actually works and it doesn't like log you off right in the middle of your conversation, as it seems to do with me all the time. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say that that also doesn't change when you're even in the same like open office space together with people. I've seen people having sitting five feet apart from each other, having an intense Slack conversation and you know, <laughs> right. witnessing like the, the Slack dander flying off of them. And I'm like, why don't you guys stop having the Slack conversation and just turn around and talk to each other for 30 seconds. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny how quickly it, we're, we're creating a whole new generation of people where that's the norm too, yeah. right? I have two daughters uh, who are, you know, teenage years. And it's amazing to me how texting is the first form of communication for them, right? Like the last thing that like I call them on the phone and they're like, what, why are, why are you calling me? And it's like, well, I wanted to talk to you. Like just <laughs> send me a text. It's like, no, like I want to talk to you. Uh, they, they don't understand it. So I'd see this, honestly getting worse in the, in the coming years and being something that we have to continue to press against uh, more than I see it getting better. So you mentioned the remote work and you, you also started to mention that the having some flexibility in time of day, how important do you think it is for people to have, I guess, work? And you mentioned how you guys are kind of spread out at test double. It sounds like it's all in within the Americas, right? And, and maybe even North America more specifically. So you, you have maybe four or five or six time zones to work with if you go out to Hawaii or you get really far east up in Canada. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's right. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I've had I've actually had trouble just with an interview uh, with the time zone issue in in Hawaii. I think it was easily five hours away from Central Time, and 
you know, finding my afternoon is, you know, my late afternoon is their lunchtime basically. And it, it was, it was difficult not, not to mention the, the bandwidth and latency issues, uh, communicating over Skype or something. Yeah, we're, we are definitely just in the Americas. We're spread across three time zones right now. Um, and there's, there's challenges to it and there's some benefits. Um, you know, I mentioned we're not dogmatic with pairing. Uh, we like to be able to pair up with people on hard problems, but we also like to have, you know, kind of the friendly confines of being able to work on your own, make some mistakes, um, you know, learn from them, undo them and communicate, you know, with your pair partner the next day, you know, kind of how far you progressed or, or maybe regress depending on the day. Um, I think there's value in that independent exploration as well. Um, so time zones can be a benefit in that regard. We've had, you know, Katie, who works for us, is in Portland, Oregon, um, was paired up with Neil, who's in Columbus, Ohio, on a project. And, and they they didn't adjust their timeline or time zone or basically their work schedules to, to exactly align. And the benefit to that was, you know, Neil could make some progress on a problem. He could maybe, you know, do some of the things that were a little bit more rote. And um, if he ran into something that was really challenging that he felt he needed a pair to, to work with him on, you would wind up just putting that on the back burner and then pick it up when Katie came online later in the day. And Katie could do the same thing towards the end of the day. Um, so that's, that's, you know, I, I think been a, a little bit of a benefit, especially with us because we sell remote as well. So we're doing work with companies in San Francisco and companies in New York. Um, so having people who are, are maybe a little bit time shifted and make sure that, you know, you're able to be responsive to clients, um, even when their hours don't necessarily line up with your own. Right. Um, the, uh, the, the more interesting side of the, the, when I work discussion, I think, um, is really how quickly we can get depleted. Um, and, and again, this speaks more to autonomy than probably the specifics of when I work, but, uh, there's, there's an interesting study. Um, I don't know if, if you've heard of this, well, I know John has because he was at the talk, but um, the uh, Roy ba- Baumeister, Dr. Roy Baumeister in like the late 90s, they did a study where uh, they told the, the subjects coming in that it was a sensory study. Uh, so these subjects would come in, you know, as just one person into a room that, you know, just smelled of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Uh, so they're just overwhelmed with the smell as soon as they come into the room and they had be presented this table and on one dish or, you know, a couple dozen freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, the other dish had a bunch of radishes and, you know, half of the group were able to, uh, we're told eat two or three cookies. We'll be back in, in about 15 minutes to gather some data from you. And the other, other group was told eat two or three radishes and we'll be back in about 15 minutes to gather some data from you. Whatever you do, don't eat more radishes or cookies than what we said definitely don't eat the other one, right? So we have to keep the, the data clean, so don't eat the other one. So the real test that they, they would do is they would come back in after 15 minutes and they would present them with this problem that was inherently unsolvable. Uh, so they were just timing how long these people would continue working on this problem. And you know, oddly enough, the people who were told to eat these, you know, horrible radishes uh, and don't eat any cookies gave up after eight minutes. The people who are allowed to eat cookies gave up after 19 minutes. 
So mm, their willpower, yes, exactly. So their willpower, just by not being able to indulge in a bunch of cookies, had been depleted to the point where their focus shrunk on a problem, right? Where they basically would give up. And, you know, software development, I feel like all we do is unsolvable problems half the time, right? Like it's, it's always a test of willpower doing software development. So this is really pertinent to us. Um, I tried to highlight a story, uh, maybe partially uh, from my past where, you know, start working at early in the morning at eight o'clock and find a bug and start trying to understand, okay, what caused the bug? Uh, of course, it was something I wrote, not something you wrote. Uh, I know that because I would do get blame first thing, be like, who's the idiot who wrote this and find, oh, yeah, that was that was me. I'm, I'm responsible. So I can't even punt it to someone else. I have to fix it. Um, and then just as your day goes on, you're, you're struggling with this, right? Uh, you're maybe struggling later in the day, you know, oh, should I write a test for this? Should I automate a test for this? Or maybe I can just get away with just shipping it and not having to do that. And, and you make all of these decisions and you're trying to, you know, keep this level of discipline in your craft. And, and you basically get to a point where your willpower runs out and you start cutting corners and you, you start losing focus. You become distracted. You wind up, you know, looking at cat videos on the internet for extended periods of time. Um, it happens, right? We've all oh, been yeah. there. It's, it's very tough to stay focused. That's one, another one of the benefits of the pairing that you mentioned, Craig, is, you know, you can basically have kind of a healthy pressure to stay focused on a problem for, I think, longer periods of time. Um, so the way that we work, the autonomous environment that we work uh, allows people to maybe self-select a little bit more how they fix this. So even doing like 90 minutes of focused work and 20 minutes off has been proven to be, you know, very, very efficient. And it shows that people can kind of recharge their battery um, a little bit. So, so the, uh, uh, the Pomodoro technique then. Yeah, kind of an extended Pomodoro, though. Uh, so, longer. I, yeah, I find like Pomodoros are typically, what, 25 minutes on, five minutes off? Um, I've seen them as long as, I think, 50 minutes, but I'm so, not sure what the original is. Yeah, so that would be a little bit closer. I think Pomodoros were originally uh, used as a study technique, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to focus very intently on, on memorization and things like that, um, and you probably need a little bit quicker cycle of breaks. Software development, sometimes I feel like if I'm only doing 25 minutes, like I don't make enough headway yeah. on a problem where I wind up just repeating a lot of my steps the next Pomodoro. Um, so if I have maybe something closer to 90 minutes, I can actually make pretty extensive progress on a feature, get 20 minutes off, come back, finish it up, and then move on to the next. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where I came up with 50. Maybe it's just what I found is works well for me or someone else. Yeah. Um, I actually don't thing. do that. I use a water glass and... Uh, if it's empty, then I have an excuse to get up and walk down the hall, get some more water. And of course, is drinking that much water. I have to use the bathroom once in a while. So that breaks up into about an hour, hour and a half length. And that, that seems to work pretty well for me, actually. Yeah, and I so think that's, the, that's kind of the key is to experiment a little bit and see uh, what, what works best for you. So, so the Baumeister, Baumeister uh, study, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the takeaway is supposed to be. Is it, is it supposed to be that... Uh, that willpower is a finite resource or that uh, developers need to eat more cookies so they have more willpower? <laughs> I think both, uh, to be honest with you. Um, uh, honestly, the, the study is intriguing to me because I've experienced this for so long and just never, like I always thought it was a me issue, right? Like, no, this is a human issue. Um, there's a point where we get depleted 
you feel it, the best thing that you can do at that point is to recharge in some way, shape, or form. Um, so having an environment that allows you to do that is key. Uh, again, I one of the things that I feel um, you know very is very important to to where we go next as an industry is starting to limit a lot of this kind of sweatshop mindset for software development. Uh, a lot of these startups now are you know, basically promising you, you get a small percentage of a stake in a lottery ticket, right? Um, but to get that, you have to work 12 hours a day for six days a week when studies have shown anything above and beyond like six to eight hours is not that effective for creative work. So you're probably doing more harm than good at that point. You're just creating more work for yourself, let alone you're sacrificing so many other things um, to, to just be there, uh, to be present for 12 hours. It shouldn't be that way. And the industry is so, uh, you know, rampant with openings right now. I hope people never feel like they have, like that's the norm. That's what they have to do. Find a better place to work if they need you to work 60 hours a week every week. Yeah, absolutely. It was really, it was really intriguing to me when, when you were doing this talk live, when I saw it live, Todd, and you were kind of showing and talking about, you went into some more depth about maybe what some of your days have looked like. And obviously you talked about that starting out early, running into a bug, trying to fix the bug, that whole thing. And that really, really resounded with me because I feel like I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a a start off really strong in the morning. I feel like I have my most energy from, you know, seven o'clock until 7 a.m. until like 11. That's, that's one of my, strong. I have a lot of endurance. I feel really creative at that point. And from there until, you know, about three o'clock, I'm just like, I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it at every turn. I'm fighting the cat videos at every turn, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But then like at about five or six o'clock again, I get my second wind. But then of course I'm home. I'm I'm checked out by, you know, five or six o'clock or I'm in the car on the way home. It'd be really nice if I could work more there, you know? I'm, I'm very similar. And that's that's the other, I, I think, takeaway I tried to provide with this was that don't assume that nine to five is your schedule. Uh, so I've found that I wake up uh, relatively early. I get up about six and I try to get right into the most creative problems I've left for myself uh, the day before. Um, the prefrontal cortex is most active first thing in the morning or after extended periods of rest. So you want those creative juices. They will be flowing for you more when you first wake up. So I, like, I, I can't imagine having like an hour and a half commute into work, right? Like by the time you're showering and like getting ready for work and you actually arrive at work, like I, I would probably be depleted just by that, um, let alone I would be my least creative self. Uh, but John, I have a, I have a very similar schedule. I, I get up around six, start working. 11 o'clock, I'm usually pretty wiped. Uh, so I'll go for a run, shower, have lunch, things like that. And I usually don't kind of get back into it really until one or two. Um, and then even that, maybe I'll be doing some more of the mundane kind of things, responding to email, dealing with expense reports, uh, dealing with stuff that's maybe a little bit less creative in nature. Um, and then I usually do get a boost again, I think, as, as you digest and as you... <laughs> Maybe it's an afternoon coffee. I don't know. I uh, around three to five. I, I can 
kind of get back into the flow a little bit. I, I'm not a morning person, so uh, two o'clock is probably the prime time for me. Um, I probably do have That's some the time morning... you get up too. You get up at two. Uh, I would like to get up probably about ten or eleven, <laughs> and, and but uh, I probably do have some creative uh, energy probably around nine, maybe eight thirty nine. Um, but you know that's that's when my commute is, or uh, you know or I'm in the shower or something. Maybe it's because I'm in the shower at eight thirty. That would make me more creative too. Yeah, but it's not it's everyone funny. has a. I guess my point was everyone has a different schedule, and you need to find out what it is for yourself. Yep. Be be willing to experiment to figure out what that is. You need to get yourself some of those aqua notes, Craig, where you can you can uh, take notes while you're in the shower. I should get one of the uh, newer cell phones that's waterproof and just you know hit a, a voice memo you know while I'm in the shower. The ones that you pour champagne on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but but maybe you know having some phone free time maybe is a good thing. So maybe I don't want that. Well, Todd, what's another one of your fallacies of software developers? Yeah, I would say the probably the one that um, at least hit closest to home with me and a lot of other people that I talked to uh, as I was preparing for this talk was um, that the clever solution is always the best one. Uh, I, I really feel like this one is, is commonly made uh, much to the detriment of me and every other software developer who, who comes behind you, right? Um, and it, it's funny because we don't see it that way, right? The way we look at ourselves versus the way we look at others is completely different. Uh, the person speeding past us on the highway going 50 miles an hour or faster than what we are, like they're a crazy wild person, right? Like they're completely reckless. Uh, the person going 50 miles an hour slower than us, right? Like, why are they even driving, right? Like they should just get off of the road. Our speed is the right speed, right? But you have to understand, like others are looking at you the same way. Um, and that's the, the same thing with, with our technical decisions. Uh, I think the story I shared um, at, the, at the conference was one where early on in my career, I first started doing a pretty intense uh, you know, website with, with uh, a lot of validation on the client side with JavaScript. And, you know, it was, it was a big form. So we wanted to basically produce this thing that was relatively concise for the amount of work it was going to do and have it be able to be used across multiple pages, right? So we wanted to focus on reuse first, right, before we got it working. And we want it to be concise, right? Because, you know, less code is always better. Um, so I came up with this really clever recursive uh, algorithm that was going to do this. And it was basically going to, you know, walk the DOM, find things that needed to be validated, figure out which validation it should use and apply those. And then, you know, just continue doing that. And this was before we had a lot of the tooling that we do now in the web, right? Like I, Chrome wasn't even a thing when I was building this. I was doing it in IE, you know, God help me. Yikes. Um, yeah, exactly. So like IE6, I think too. Um, Ouch. So the first like, you know, I feel like I have this thing working, so I, you know, go to the the page that loaded it, and browser crashes. Like, oh well, that's that's unfortunate. So you know, back in the day, what you did was you started throwing in a bunch of alerts. So then I got like two hundred alert windows and browser crashes again. It was like, okay, this is obviously not ideal, um, but I finally got it working, and you know, I was really proud of this because I felt like it was the right amount of clever. Uh, you know, it was concise. 
there's recursion there, sure, but it did so much work for, for so few lines of code. And what I found, though, was as we had new things come up and new pages start to use this, this thing would always have to be tweaked. And it wasn't always me doing the tweaking, right? So somebody else would have to, you know, mess with this thing. And it was almost always they would start messing with it. Browser would crash. They'd be like, Todd, what is going on with this thing? And, you know, what, what was a really elegant and clever recursive solution just wound up being a huge maintenance nightmare. Because even after like a month or two, I would go back and look at it and be like, yeah, I really, I really can't remember how this thing completely works. So we're trying to balance, you know, the right level of cleverness in our solutions with also an amount of clarity. And, and I find it to be really, really challenging. Um, you know, on the flip side of this, I was, my co-founder, Justin, and I were giving a uh, workshop in test-driven JavaScript. And he, uh, we got to this part in the Roman numerals catalog where, you know, we had, we basically had it working. So he wanted to do a refactor where he started bringing, we're doing this in JavaScript. He started bringing in Lodash and, and basically chained together a number of, uh, you know, function calls made like a really nice kind of like concise, you know, bit of functional JavaScript that did this. But it was really obtuse to me because I wasn't that familiar with Lodash at that point. Um, so I think what it kind of burnt into my brain at the time was that the successful teams will normalize on this balance, right? And a lot of other balances out there, um, like, you know, speed versus quality or, um, you know, using progressive solutions compared to the ones that we're more comfortable with. Uh, the successful teams will will kind of communicate about this stuff and will normalize on it over time so that we know, all right, this may be a little bit too clever. Or as Craig was saying, right, they'll pair. So you get instant feedback when you start implementing a clever solution. Craig will let you know, yeah, I have no idea what you're doing, and this is <laughs> you know, being horrible to me. Like, we should maybe choose something else. Um or at least, you know, document it so we know what the heck we were thinking when we go back to this. And further, I think that people often focus on the build cost of solutions and maybe not as much on the maintenance costs. And we tend to spend a lot more time maintaining these things than we do building mm. them. So that's a, I would that's stress, a good to, point. stress to focus on those uh, as much as possible as well. So if you have to do the clever solution, at least isolate it, you know, give it a, a nice name that's clear what it does and why it's doing it. Not necessarily yep. how it's doing it, and then isolate that in its own, hopefully its own class. Um, maybe its own yeah. method. Yeah, isolate it as, as granular as you can and test the heck out of it so that yeah. you at least leave a paper trail of, here's what I expect this thing to be doing, and if you change it and you break one of these tests, it will guide you towards, you know, hopefully not just deleting the test, but hopefully fixing it, making sure it passes the test again. Now, now that said, I have seen clever things that turn out to be like very simple. If you've, if you're clever enough to find the simple solution that's clear and clever, that that's pretty amazing. And, and I have an example actually. Amos, uh, I saw him come up with one of these. We were working with uh, a background queue to to background some tasks, and we were trying to test it. And you know, we're like, oh man, how do I make sure that that it's done? And he's like, well, and we sat there for a little while, and he's like, oh, well, we just instead of enqueuing it, we just run the thing right now. You know, we just, we don't even queue it up. We just pretend like we're queuing it, but just run it right then. I'm like, oh, well, that was, that was clever, but also obvious in retrospect, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. If you can, like simplicity is really what we need to strive for. But again, that's simplicity for somebody who's really familiar with technology that you're not familiar with is different than simplicity for you. So again, we have to, we have to normalize on all these things. Yeah. You said normalize a couple of times there, Todd, and normal, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the normalizing, especially as it relates to how a team will deal with these, these clever solutions or, you know, the, uh, the overly complex for the sake of complexity solutions, which I really think is what is, is what you're talking about when you mean clever. You mean something that is that is v- much more complex than it really needs to be. It, it can be, yeah. um, or it, it can be basically something that's leveraging uh, maybe a more technical solution than what the team's comfortable with. And again, the, what I'm saying with normalize is make make sure that we communicate, make sure that we get multiple sets of eyes on all of the bits of code that we're shipping to production. Uh, I think this is one of the you know one of the better things that we've uh, been able to one of the bigger steps that we've been able to make as an industry. I think is when we started leveraging you know distributed uh, source code repositories like Git. so that we can start doing things like pull requests, leaving comments in line, and start having maybe a communication uh, with each other about what an, an ideal solution would look like, even though that doesn't have to be all of us like crammed into a code review room for two hours, right? We can do it a little bit more ad hoc. People can swoop in, add their thoughts, swoop out. Um, and we can have a little bit more of a running dialogue about, you know, what is clever versus clear? What is simple versus complex? So Brian Kernigan had a, had a nice quote that, uh, I'm reminded of uh, cautioning about being clever. Uh, the quote goes, debugging is twice as hard as writing the code in the first place. Therefore, if you write the code as cleverly as possible, you are by de- definition not smart enough to debug it. That's very accurate. And I think that's what you're getting at. <laughs> so it sounds yeah, like, uh, Todd, when you, when you talk about normalization, what you, the, the way you do that mechanically is by having uh, the team the members of the team having a chance to have eyes on the code and some practical hands-on experience with creating that code. So the more people see it, the more people interact with it, the more people that were involved in its creation, the more it has been normalized by the team. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I feel, I feel like the more we can communicate about these things, the better off we are. Um, you know, the, the mechanism I described for doing that is pull requests, but you know, we've talked a lot about pairing earlier and pairing is huge. That's real time communication about ideal solutions, about quality, about the trade-offs that we make hundreds of times a day as software developers. Um, so doing pairing, um, you know, alternating pairs, changing up who you're working with on the team so that uh, you, you not only can normalize with one other person on the team, but as a team, you start to, to learn, uh, you know, strengths that you have that maybe I don't, I come up to speed faster with, um, you know, my opinions on what clarity is versus yours, we start to find a middle ground. Um, that's, that's, I guess, what the biggest takeaway from this. That's interesting because Craig, you and I have both worked on teams where we had, where we worked pairing all the time, right? And, and, and we also um, valued changing pairs frequently. I think in, in your case, you guys changed pairs a bit more frequently than most. 
but I, I certainly found, and I wonder what your opinion here is, Craig, but I found on the team that I worked on where we paired, we pair switched frequently that almost without exception, it was the, it, there was nothing that was necessarily clever. There weren't super like elegant solutions. Things were just kind of dead simple. And I think that that happened out of necessity, out of the necessity that no one, no one had the chance to just be clever and to spend time doing something <laughs> super clever. You know, it was like your pair would say, Hey, knock that off. We don't have time for this, this cleverness. Right. We don't have time to include I, I technology think- X. We got to just get this done. I think also the fact, so one is the time constraint, but the other is the, the, the more people looking at it and you're more likely to find the simple solution and, or, or at least the, the clear solution, you know, the one that has the most clarity. Now, what was really interesting for me, Craig, was that the team that this team, particularly, particularly that I'm talking about had a lot of novice developers on it. What was your team was mostly composed of, uh, senior developers, right? Um, senior and in mid level. Yeah. So much more experienced than people that were just a few years into their careers as developers. Yeah. Um, but, but to Todd's point, I think the, um, the communication between every two people on the team, every pair is going to be different and you have to learn how to communicate with each person a little bit differently. Um, so for a junior person, you might have to, uh, be a little more explicit about what you're trying to accomplish or even point out what this, um, idiom in the language does. Um, whereas if you're two seniors, you might not have to be as explicit. They're going to understand the idioms. Um, but understanding how to communicate with each person is very important. Well, and I, I actually think that sometimes we forget as we've, advanced in our careers, we forget what simple means or we're sometimes we're, we're out there trying to make things more complex than they need to be just to make them more interesting. And, and this, this, this group that I was working with where we were just, you know, this group was just concerned with like the nuts and bolts of things. So they didn't even have time to try and be, or they didn't even have a thought of trying to be super clever or creative with stuff. They're like, man, we just, I'm just happy when it works. (laughs) So Todd, what about what about that? Because one, I think one of the things that you said was, you know, realizing or forgetting or thinking that if you work with someone that's a junior developer or a senior developer, whatever those things mean, that you you assume, oh, I'm not going to be able, or maybe you assume some people assume that I won't be able to learn anything from that person. Yeah, the uh, the fallacy I was hinting at here was that we don't need a level of humility uh, within our our jobs in our lives. Uh, software developers, we're, for whatever reason, I, I find that we're very ego-driven. Um, oftentimes, we like to puff our chest out and lay claim to, hey, we have the, you know, we have the right design for this. We have the right solution for this. Our way is the best way. Um, and, and the problem with that is it, it puts a little bit of blinders on on it so that we can't see alternate solutions, specifically with working with people who maybe have less experience uh, than you, uh, you know, they, they come into it eyes wide open. Um, so they, they tend to ask a lot of probing questions, maybe about things that you just take for granted that you didn't ask the same probing questions on. 
so maybe you're you haven't you know really tried to understand what's going on under the hood and they are uh, it's something that you just take for granted I've found that I learn as much when pairing with with people who have less experience on on a topic than I do um, as I do probably even more so than I do when I'm you know pairing with somebody who has a lot more experience than I do um, because I think I feel like you're drinking from a fire hose a little bit sometimes when you're pairing with more experienced people uh, when you're pairing with with people who are a little bit less experienced in a specific area you know to me it's it's a great opportunity to really test if if you can teach somebody something like you really know it right so you start to find some of the blind spots that you may have in your in your comfortable technologies or frameworks I've paired, I've had similar experience. I've paired with a lot of different levels of people and, and I don't find that the level of the other person affects the, the quality of the pairing or, or what I learn. I, I learn the same amount with no matter what level the person's at and, and I can make it work no matter what level they're at. Um, granted that is a different, has a different flavor for, uh, different levels of people, but also different types of communicators. So, you know, as I said, every pair is different, um, and you need to find out what works. Um, but there will be something that can work. I guarantee it. If you can, if you can swallow some of that ego, and admit to yourself that a person, regardless of level of experience, regardless of time in the industry has the potential to teach you something. I think you really open yourself up to a lot of great experiences. Yeah, I've been doing that a lot lately. I've actually been not caring about being right and let the other person try their idea. And it's, it's just worked so well. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a team sport, right? Like there's, there's not an MVP of, of our software development teams. Um, so being a successful team means that we're all learning. I, I think one of the reasons, uh, at least that I started Test Double, was, was because I wanted to surround myself with people that I could learn from. And, and I joke that I'm the stupidest person at my company, uh, but I, I kind of feel like that's pretty accurate on most days. Uh, we've, we've assembled a really great staff that, you know, when I'm not learning is when I typically get bored and start you know, entertaining the the recruiters on LinkedIn. Uh, when I'm learning day in and day out is when I feel really fulfilled in my life. And and it's been five years of that since I've been at Test Double. That that's how I know when it's time to look for a new job too. Yep. Todd, in your presentation, you kind of end it with uh, one particular slide where it's assume it's a you problem, etc. Could you reshare that closing with our audience here on this topic? Yeah, so a few of the takeaways um, that I hope people walked away with from from the talk was, uh, again, number one, assuming that the problem is with you. Uh, I think oftentimes it's much easier for us to to just point the finger at others, right? We think that you know the the end user is is an idiot, right? Like they just don't know how to use software. It's a them problem, uh, or the the project manager just doesn't understand software development. So you know they're they're boneheads they they don't know what they're doing the stakeholders you know they don't really understand what the software should do um the problem with this mindset is it immediately prevents you from getting better right so when when you assume that the problem is with others uh it's inherently unfixable maybe you can influence them a little bit here and there 
Uh, but it's really out of your control at that point. When you assume the problem is with you, when you assume that you're not communicating well, that you build a solution that the end users just can't use, you need to take another stab at it. Uh, when you assume that the the stakeholder really does know what the software should do and you should listen to them, it, it changes things, right? Like then it presents an opportunity for improvement. Um, you know, the other other couple points were basically assume it's not a technology or process problem. Uh, we all try to reach for the easy solution, whether it's React and Node, uh, whether it's, you know, doing the Agile or Scrum. Uh, we try to solve these things just with, with whatever's new and shiny, and we just wind up making the same mistakes time and time again. It's very frustrating. But the final bit is, is enact change. Like, we talk a lot about improving the way the world builds software. It's a huge, audacious goal. Right, uh, it's something that maybe will have a very small dent in by the time we're done, but at least we're trying, right? So it's better to at least start with yourself and try to make forward progress than it is to just wash your hands of it and give up. Does do you and does Test Double have some sort of sort of a ingrained mechanism or an approach that you guys use in terms of this following, you know, bullet three enact change. Is there something that you guys strive for or have, have found just to be really successful in that regard? Uh, man, there's whole sections of psychology on implementing change and influencing behavior. Um, so I'll, I'll list a couple of books that I think are, are really, really good ones to pick up. Um, because they, they just help you think about things differently. And there you'll see, like, talking about how your environment kind of changes the way you work. I've pulled a lot of that stuff from, from prior art, obviously. Um, I don't find that it's a one-size-fits-all. Uh, again, I, what we find is that we can spark a lot of interest at conferences uh, talking to people or doing, like, you know, week-long training sessions on TDD or um, implementing things with React. Uh, we, can, we can get a lot of interest uh, with those, but we really start to enact change when we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the developers, understanding the problems that they're facing of first, you know, basically adapting to their environment and trying to be empathetic and get in their mindset, then sharing our experiences and what we've learned and how it can hopefully improve things with them. That kind of one, two punch, uh, to me tends to be more effective. I think a lot of coaching and, that I've seen as people coming in and dictating, you know, well, you shouldn't estimate, you know, that's, that's the solution. It's like, well, it doesn't work for us here. Right. Well, you should just shouldn't, shouldn't use, you know, cucumber because that doesn't work. Like, well, we have to use cucumber. So how can we use it effectively? Um, trying to at least be empathetic and understand the mindset of the people that you're working with first uh, tends to at least open the door quite a bit for you to start influencing them and, and enacting some change in their lives as well. Chip and Dan Heath uh, wrote a book called Switch, uh, which is really, really interesting book on uh, basically on uh, the psychology of, of influence and, and change. Um, so it's really good. Uh, it's a short read. It's really, really easy. Um, if you want like a bigger version of that, there's a book called Influencer. The company is Vital Smarts. So it's um, Joseph Grenny, Carrie Patterson, and others. 
um, I think it's the people who are behind like the crucial conversations books as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, they wrote a a big, big book on, uh, how some people have been able to basically apply some psychology to, you know, really making change within the world, uh, at a pretty, pretty large impact. So both of those are fantastic. Great. And did you have any other picks for this episode? Uh, yeah. So I, this episode is brought to you by Everybody's Brewing, uh, has a cold press coffee porter, uh, which I was sampling throughout this episode. And it's, it's pretty fantastic. It's actually a, a porter with cold pressed coffee infused into it. And it was, it was very tasty. Now, is that a, is that a local Ohio brewery or is that a national <laughs> sort of thing? No, I, it's not Ohio. I picked it up off. It's actually in the uh, state of Washington. Good, because I want to be sure I can get my hands on it. <laughs> All right, well, let's see what Craig has for his picks. All right, uh, my first pick is uh, an app called Hugo. Uh, it creates static websites. Um, I've decided that WordPress is cool and all, but I write a blog entry one time, and if a 1,000 people read it, it doesn't make sense to generate it a 1,000 times. It makes sense to generate it once when I write it. So I am trying to move all my sites as much as possible to static websites. Uh, Hugo, uh, I've looked at Middleman, which is in Ruby, uh, and and it looks pretty good. But I think I'm going to go with Hugo, which is written in Go, um, for a few different reasons. Um, so Hugo, and a uh, link to the site will be in the show notes. My other pick is beekeeping, um, keeping bees. So I got uh, my first... Uh, colony of bees a couple weeks ago. I decided to start beekeeping um, mainly because of the the colony collapse disorder. Um, you know, bees have been having some trouble uh, with some uh, pesticides and some uh, mites. So I am trying to help them out because we need bees to keep all our crops going. So I started beekeeping, and uh, my dad has also just started. Uh, and there is a large community of beekeepers. There are local uh, uh, meetups in town. I went to one this week. Uh, there was like 100 people there. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of interesting thing. There's It's a different cross-section of the population than I would normally run into. Uh, but people are interested in learning. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to it. Uh, it's very interesting. So do you have the whole suit and everything? Uh, I have a very thin jacket veil um and some gloves and um it works pretty well for me now what are you doing with these bees <clears throat> so you've got this box that that is their hive and you've got these um little frames inside that that slide down into the box and you can pick them up and and look at your bees and and the honeycomb that they've made and uh if there's honey in there or eggs or larvae uh, but you know there are about you know ten to fifty thousand bees in this box, so that's a little intimidating the first time. Even if you even if you like bees, well, I'll bet your neighbors are just pleased as punch with you. So the <laughs> bees travel like a two mile radius, so most of them are nowhere near the yard. They're gone, and, and I face I face it away from them. Yeah, they go out foraging oh. for you know, uh, you know. So most of them. Yeah, they're they're mostly, you know, you might see uh, a dozen or maybe a hundred or so in front of the hive, um, but that's facing away from the neighbors. And usually by about twenty feet, they're pretty much dispersed. 
So in the future, I'm going to be expecting a lot of beekeeper advice on agile methods. Uh, that's interesting. Well, you do have to learn and adjust. So um, that seems pretty agile to me. Inspect and adapt. Yep. Okay. Inspecting is a lot of what you do with the, with the beehives. All right, so my pick for this episode is, I don't think I've picked this one before, and I, I know I've read this book before, but actually when I was traveling up to uh, Michigan, I, I re- re-bought this book on the Kindle so I could reread it, and it's The Effective Executive from Mr. Peter Drucker. And the reason I wanted to reread this book was I'm interested in doing some writing on the topic of efficiency and effectiveness, especially as it applies to um, knowledge workers, which I put software developers in the category of knowledge worker, and knowledge worker is also our executives also are also in the category of knowledge workers. Knowledge workers are basically people that you know they don't produce widgets; they they produce thought stuff. So I wanted to reread this book and uh, see what sort of nuggets I could mine out of there. And like I said, even if you are not an executive. You, will, you may find some really good advice in this book. So check out The Effective Executive from Peter Drucker. All right, those are our picks. We want to say a special thanks to Todd Kaufman from Test Double. Todd, if people listening want to get in touch with you or find out more about Test Double or both, uh, how would people go about doing that? Yeah, they can uh, reach out on our website. Uh testdouble.com. That's T-E-S-T-D-O-U-B-L-E.com. Uh, that's also our Twitter handle, testdouble. And uh, yeah, you can you can always email us, hello at testdouble.com. We'll, we'll get to us. Well, Todd, thank you again for being on the show. It has been a pleasure. And uh, we, we didn't get to quite cover all of the fallacies of software developers. So I will include the entire list of the, the fallacies in our show notes, as well as a link to Todd's presentation from Agile and Beyond 2016. Todd, once again, hey, well, I, had, I had a blast, John. Thanks, thanks to you, and thanks, Craig. It was it was a lot of fun. Great, that's all we could ask for. All right, everybody, thanks for listening to This Agile Life. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and for all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening. And keep living this Agile life. This Agile life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.